Okay, let's, uh, let's come together now. So you have read the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Uh, that's the second Bible to exist. Does anyone know the first Bible? The Bible has grown, right? It, God keeps adding to it. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that is the second ever Bible. What was the first Bible? That was a tricky question. Not the Ten Commandments. Not the prayer of Jabez. This is the original, this is the original, yeah, the Gospel of Thomas, not the Gospel of Thomas. This is the original Bible right here. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So begins and so ends the Word of God on day 6. That was the entire Bible that Adam had to preserve, protect, and teach. The whole counsel of God was fairly simple on day 6. There's a lot of trees here, honey, for us to eat. Don't eat that one. Because on the day that we eat of that tree, we will surely die. Now we know that they sinned, and so the Bible had to grow. But the first time that the Bible really grew was when God spoke through Moses, and Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Yeah. Maybe. I, I, I haven't thought about it, so I don't want to say no. It didn't jump out at me. So what Hayden asked is, is there a connection between anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed or don't chop down trees that bear fruit when you are laying siege to a city? Those are both in Deuteronomy. You read the book, that's good. Um, I don't know what the connection might be. I don't initially see it, but that doesn't mean there isn't a connection. So maybe... But amazing, isn't it, how the Bible was just so simple on day six, and then about 3,500, 3,400 years ago, God expanded that two-verse Bible to include the first five books of the Torah. What I hope that you have seen as you've read through the first five books is there's nothing missing in the Bible, the Bible that we have, that's not here in some form in these first five books. The whole, the whole counsel of God is in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Everything else that comes after is reflection on, experience of, and application and implementation of the Torah, which is amazing. So if, if you know the Torah, you really do have the gospel. So to start our time tonight, let's just see how the book of Deuteronomy starts. This is the word of God. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. I love the little stats in there. It's 11 days journey from Mount Sinai. Horeb and Sinai are the same place. 11 days journey to get to where they are here, but it took them 40 years. That's what we've been reading about in especially numbers. Why did it take them 40 years? Faithlessness. 
so that God might humble them and test them. Let's pray. God, as we take a look at these final words of Moses, we are amazed that you preserved his sermons to Israel so many years ago on the eve of their taking of the promised land. Uh, There was nothing to record his voice, uh, none of the technology that we have, and yet you, by your sovereign care of the sermons that you have delivered through your servant Moses, preserved them and put them in the Bible for us so that we would know what was said As we seek to unpack this book tonight, I pray that you would help us to understand the deep significance that the book of Deuteronomy has for us as Christians. This is not a book to be ignored or thrown away. This is a crucial book. I thank you for Hayden and the sermon that he preached where he showed us just how precious the book of Deuteronomy was to Jesus and is to Jesus, and I pray that you would help us to see its significance for us tonight. Help me, Lord, to make my way through this book in a way that is clear a way that builds up the men who are here, in a way that glorifies you and reveals the gospel. We desire to know Jesus more deeply. I pray that you would answer that request. I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. In your notes, in the biblical theology section, I just want to recap that first of ten. I give you ten things to think about with regards to Biblical theology. Before we get into the book, just sort of an initial gl- uh, glance at, at the book of Deuteronomy and its significance for us, I say that, that the book of Deuteronomy presents an equal opportunity for reflection on the past wanderings of Israel in the wilderness, right? That's what we're doing. Uh, they've come to the edge of the promised land, and Moses says, before we go forward, let's remember where we've been. So it gives us an opportunity to remember the, the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness, the last generation, 40 years. But it also has this forward slant to it. It's looking forward, and it invites us to ponder the future hopes of Israel in the promised land. So they haven't yet failed. They haven't yet chased after other gods. They haven't yet uh, done anything that would merit their exile from the land, which we know that that is coming. And so The book of Deuteronomy is, of all the books of the Torah, the most reflective, which is perhaps why it's such an important book in the New Testament. Because the book of Deuteronomy is a a book of reflection backward and forward. Backward to all that God had done since Adam and forward to what the hopes were for Israel in the land. And that's why as we move next week into Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, you'll notice I jumped over Ruth because in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is placed uh, at the end of the Hebrew canon, not in between Judges and 1st Samuel. And these books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, are called the Deuteronomistic History because uh, they're reflecting on Israel's failure to live up to the Deuteronomistic expectation. And really, it's an apology for why Israel finds itself in exile. Why is it that God's chosen people would be sitting in Babylon? It's because they couldn't keep the book of Deuteronomy. So we find out, without even at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses predicts that this is going to be the case, that Israel fails. One of the great biblical theological lessons, then, from this book is that it is not possible for Israel or any other nation to keep the demands of the Old Covenant. So embedded in in the book of Deuteronomy, in the expectation and the blessings and curses paradigm that is put there, it necessitates a new covenant if we're going to be saved. Right from the outset. And Moses hints at that at the end of the book. Now Matthew, reflecting on this, 
takes a look at the Torah and looks at, at Deuteronomy, and he highlights how Jesus is reenacting Israel's experience from slavery to promised land. So we see that Jesus goes into Egypt when Herod tries to kill the children, and he is called out of Egypt and goes into the promised land in Matthew 2. He shares in Israel's baptism into Moses when he's baptized by John in Matthew 3. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, a day for each year that Israel was in the wilderness, where he is tempted, and Hayden has already shown us, that all three of those temptations, Jesus refers back to Deuteronomy. Why? Because Deuteronomy, where Jesus cites in those those temptations, where he goes in Deuteronomy, is Moses reflecting on Israel's failure in the wilderness. And so Jesus is saying, unlike Israel who failed in the wilderness, who failed in the land, I'm not going to fail. And so he learns the Deuteronomistic lessons and does not fail. After his 40 days in the wilderness, a a day for each year, Jesus inaugurates a new Israel by calling 12 disciples around him, one disciple for every tribe. And then he ascends the mountain to issue forth the law, the Sermon on the Mount. And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount, I hope that you'll see the close parallel, when Jesus says, you heard it said, but now I say to you. You heard it said, but now I say to you. We often think that Jesus is being innovative. He's giving us something new. He's not. He's just showing us the right way to read the book of Deuteronomy. You've heard it said from your teachers, but I say to you, and I said to you in the book of Deuteronomy, remember he's God, that this this command against murder is not just about not killing anybody, it's about your heart. This command about adultery is not just about not, not sleeping with another man's wife, it's about lust, and so on and so forth. So Jesus is saying, you've heard it said by your teachers and, and the scribes and the Pharisees that this is how you should understand the law, but I say to you, as I have always said to you, that's not what the law means. So he gives us a right understanding of the law. So, so Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is Moses, fulfilling Moses going up Mount Sinai to receive the law from God, and he's t- helping us to understand how to read the law. So in this Christological reenactment of Israel's history, Jesus is the perfect covenant partner under the old covenant that Israel failed to be. And we'll see today that that is crucial. Israel had failed to be God's faithful covenant partner. Therefore, the salvation of the world is in jeopardy. Jesus comes along and says, what Israel failed to do, I will do for Israel, and if for Israel, then for the nations. Had Israel been able to be a faithful covenant partner, and we'll talk about this later, if Israel had been able to be a faithful covenant partner, then they would have atoned for the nations. More on that later. But they failed. They needed atonement for themselves. Jesus provides it, and if for Israel, then in providing atonement for Israel, Jesus then fulfills Israel's mission to the nations. All this basically by reflecting on Deuteronomy. Let's take a look now at how this book is structured. The structure of every book, I think you're probably beginning to see I love structure. That's because I really think that the meaning of any book is captured by its structure and, all, and, and other things. But if you don't understand the macro structure, you will misread the book. So, so we have here three sermons plus an epilogue to the Torah. So in some ways, Deuteronomy ends at the end of chapter 30. 
And then you have chapters 31 through 34, which is an epilogue to the whole Torah. We know Moses probably didn't write that because he's talked about in ways, and, and after his death, in ways that he couldn't have written about it. So that might have been Joshua that added that on. We don't know who added it on. But, but the rest of Deuteronomy are three sermons. So Moses brings the people together. He's told that he's not going to be able to go into the promised land with his people. And, and then, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, so I have these last words for you, and we have three sermons. The first and the third sermon are short. The middle sermon is long. The middle sermon is really super important. The first sermon just recounts everything that they've been through. The last sermon is really instructions for ratifying the covenant. You're going to go into the land, and you have to reaffirm the covenant. The middle sermon is a, a, a reshaping, not, not to make it new, but to reintroduce to re, uh, it to the wilderness generation who had not been alive when, when their parents had entered into covenant with God at Sinai. Or if they were alive, they were not of age. And so Moses feels, I need, to, I need to review this. And what we'll notice is if you do a careful reading of Deuteronomy over and against Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, there's some discrepancies. And, and some scholars get all bent out of shape and say, you see, this is a redacted work. This is something that, that was written in Josiah's time because he wanted these great um, worship revolution and he wanted to, to have this great reformation of, of the country and so on and so forth. I just think it's brutally honest. It's been 40 years. And so some of the details aren't exactly the same in both, but Moses just preserved what he wrote as he went. And the sermon, he, he's, he's had 40 years to think about God's relationship with his people. He's had 40 years to think about uh, the law and the covenant. And inspired by God, he reforms all of that into this. And so I think Deuteronomy is it's brilliant. I know it is. I mean, God wrote it. But it re I never fully appreciated this book until the last couple weeks. I always liked it, but I really love it now. So we, we take a look at the second sermon. Let's just take a look at the macro structure first. You could divide it into three sections. You have chapter 4 through 11, which are general laws or general stipulations of covenant with God, and there's six of them. And then in chapters 12 through 26, you have all these specific laws which seem arbitrary and archaic to us, out of date. We don't really know what to do with them, and they make Christians really uncomfortable. So what we want to say is, that was for them then, not for us now. That's our, let's just be honest about that. That's what we want to do. But look at how much of the book of Deuteronomy that is for us to say that was for them then, not for us now. And I'm going to argue the opposite tonight. I'm going to say that was for them then and it's for us now. Not exactly in the same way, but the intent of that section is not about this law and that law. It's about understanding a right way to interpret and live out the law. Okay? And then we have blessings and curses at the very end, chapters 27 through 29. You'll be blessed if you keep covenant. You'll be cursed if you don't keep covenant. So just to review then, macro... The, the first sermon runs from chapter 1 through 4. That's a historical context. 
Israel's wandering through the wilderness when they came out of uh, the wilderness. Then the second sermon runs from the end of chapter 4 through to the end of chapter 29. Then we get the third sermon, which is a ratification of covenant, instructions 4, in chapters 29 and 30. And then we have an epilogue to the Torah, which is chapters 31 through 34. Let's take a look. Let's zoom in on Moses' first sermon. So, Really, there's five great movements in this first sermon. He says, look, we were at Horeb. I'm going to say Horeb for, for now, but it's the same as Sinai. So when I was in Exodus, I said Sinai. But now, in Deuteronomy, Sinai is called Horeb. It has two different names. Uh, so they left Horeb, and then Moses immediately appointed elders to help him to judge and to lead the people. And then we, we get a review of Israel's faithfulness, and then their time in the wilderness, including their military victories, and then a final exhortation. So let's just take a, a quick look at each of these. Uh, they left Horeb. We, we see that in, in chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Moses appointed elders in verses, chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. And we talked about how this is a really important concept for life in the church, that the plurality of, of leadership is crucial we can thank Jethro for that, Moses' father-in-law. And then Israel's faithlessness. And we have this recounting of how Israel refused to go in and take the land. God had clearly instructed them, go in and take the land. It was an 11-day journey to get there. So within the third week, they could have been in the promised land. Second week, actually. Middle of the second week. But they didn't have the faith to go in. Remember we said a couple of weeks ago when we looked at this in Numbers, the promised land is typologically associated with the new heavens and the new earth. So the faithlessness of Israel to go into the promised land is paralleled by anyone in the church who is, does not have the faith and confidence that though they die, God will raise their body from the dead and bring them into a new heavens and a new earth. If you don't believe that, then you won't be raised from the dead to go into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, you'll be raised from the dead to go to the lake of fire. So this, this is crucial. Yosef? Right. Well, to quote Paul, if you want to circumcise yourself, just cut the whole thing off. Yeah. They're not saved. It's Jesus plus nothing. That, and I, I, I was being vulgar, but so was Paul. That's exactly what Paul says in Galatians. It's Jesus plus nothing. Uh, then we're reminded of their wandering in the wilderness, their victory over um, King Sihon and King Og, and then how Moses gave Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh land and an inheritance outside of the promised land on the uh, east side of the Jordan. And then finally, uh, at the very end of this chapter, we're told, this ex exhortation to be faithful. Don't fall into the same trap that you fell into before when you worshipped a golden calf. Worship God. Don't worship idols. And, and this is how the first sermon ends. 
Remember how your parents, after seeing their great deliverance from slavery, wanted to worship an idol. Don't do that, Moses says. Because remember, when they did that, we almost didn't get to go on from there. And then your faithlessness combined with idolatry led to 40 years in the wilderness. Don't do that. And what does Israel do in the promised land that gets them thrown out, ultimately? They worship the gods of other nations. So that's the first sermon basically a review of the book of numbers now we come into the book of uh, or so we come into the second sermon chapter 4 43 to 21 and one thing i want to say before i zoom in that i forgot to say in the overview see this general laws section i said that there are six general stipulations of covenant we're going to go through each of the six the first of the six is the ten commandments keep the ten commandments and then you have two three, four, five, and six general stipulations about what it means to be in covenant with God. And then we get into the specific laws of the covenant. What I'm going to say when we get to the specific laws of the covenant is that those laws are ordered in order of the Ten Commandments. And so we get specific laws that will teach us what it looks like and what it means to keep the Ten Commandments. Now, Stay out with me, zoomed out on the general or the, the macro structure of the book. General stipulation one is to keep the law. Then you have two through six, and then you have specific laws that teach you what it means to keep stipulation, general stipulation one, to keep the Ten Commandments. This is creating an inclusio. So covenant in the book of Deuteronomy begins and ends with law keeping but what's really interesting is you have these these other general stipulations about what the covenant is and we often overlook that we reduce the covenant to what to the law keeping and if you keep the law then you're keeping covenant but that's not actually true keeping the law is one-sixth of what it means to be in covenant with God. Now, as we'll see, it's not that neat and tidy. They overlap with one another. But when we think of covenant, old covenant, mosaic covenant, what I want us to begin to do as, as men and as a church is to begin to think of covenant as these six things. Law-keeping being one of six, and then all these laws. Remember, how many laws did I say are in the old covenant? Yes, 613. So if you can think of those 613 laws as just helping us to understand how you keep the 10 laws, then that becomes one part of six of what it means to be in covenant with God. You follow me? Okay, let's take a look here. General stipulations of the covenant. Here they are. I'll give them to you and then we'll go through them. General stipulation number one, keep the Ten Commandments. General stipulation number two is the Shema. Hear, O Israel. We'll go through that. Stipulation number three is to be entirely devoted to God. Stipulation number four is to depend entirely on God. Stipulation number five is to be poor of spirit. And stipulation number six is to have a total commitment to God and to the covenant. This is... This is the Mosaic Covenant, these six things. And what, what I see here is a lot of Jesus, as Hayden said. A lot of Jesus in this. It's not so different. Let's take a look at the first one, the Ten Commandments. 
The Ten Commandments, we, we could call them the law. What I love about the Ten Commandments is there's 613 laws in the Old Covenant. God reduced them down to 10. You can keep these 10, then you're keeping the law. And then Jesus narrowed that down further to two. Love God and love people, which we're going to see in general stipulation number two. Okay. What does Jesus say about the law? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. How many Christians think that Jesus came to abolish the law? We're saved by grace, not law. No one will be saved by keeping the law. Ergo, I like that word, ergo, Jesus came to abolish the law. Well, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until the heavens and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus talking about old covenant? No. He says the, the kingdom I the kingdom of heaven has come near because I am here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because I am here. The new covenant is really that entry into the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. New, that's new covenant language. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is tricky, isn't it? What do we do? Well, first of all, I think we have to acknowledge that there's some enduring function for the law in the new covenant. Jesus has not come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill the law. Okay, that's going to become important. What does it mean to fulfill the law? That, that's key. Very important. Second thing I want to note for you is, does Jesus say, I have not come to abolish the law? Well, actually, I have come to abolish the ceremonial law and the civil law, but not the moral law. You probably heard that. Let's divide the law into three categories. There's the, the, the ceremonial law, that is abolished. That was for them then, but not for us now. Then there's the civil law. What should you do if you find somebody breaking the Sabbath? What should you do if you find somebody who is not circumcised? What should you do if you find somebody who is disrespecting his parents? That's civil law. That was for the nation of Israel. And then we say, but there's moral law. So let's keep the moral law. Because every Christian knows that if the old covenant said don't murder someone, the new covenant says don't murder someone. So we, we at least say, well, the moral law carries over, but what I don't see here is any division of the law into those three categories. And I challenge anyone to find those three categories anywhere in the Bible. And it was only a few weeks ago that we were in the book of Leviticus, and did we not see how every one of the Levitical laws is still operative in the New Covenant? 
We're still under a priesthood. Not a Levitical priesthood, but what priesthood? The Melchizedekian priesthood. But that's the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. It was but a shadow. We don't bring rams and bulls and goats and sheep to offer as an offering. But every time we worship God, we offer the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. We don't keep the festivals in the same way, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the festivals, and so on and so forth, right? All ceremonial law that hasn't been abolished, but it's been fulfilled, and we keep it. We keep Leviticus. Ceremonial law is the same. Everyone who disrespects his mother and father deserves to die. We're not killing anyone. Why? I'll let that hang. The key part here is the end. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What do we know about the Pharisees and scribes? Legalists. So what I am not saying is that we need to become legalistic. This is where everyone gets scared, right? Oh no, oh no. He's pro-law, pro-law. Ding, 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 ding. Get out of here. That's not what I'm saying. Because if I was pro-legalism, then I would be pro-Pharisee. Jesus was not pro-Pharisee. But what we know about the Pharisees is they kept the letter of the law. They didn't boil a kid in its mother's milk. They didn't mix fabrics. They didn't mix kinds of grain. They tithed dill and cumin. They, they knew the 613 laws and thousands of additional laws that they came up with so that they wouldn't break the 613 laws, and they kept them. That's why Paul says, under the law, blameless. Right? When he's talking about himself, I was a, a, a Pharisee taught under, uh, at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a very well-respected Pharisee. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. According to the law, blameless. Well, hold on a minute, Paul. I thought you said that nobody can be blameless according to the law. That's because Paul's understanding of the law grew. And he began to understand that he wasn't blameless in the, in the, in the Deuteronomistic sense, but he was blameless under the law from a pharisaical point of view. That is, he kept the literal law, the letter of the law, perfectly. And he never erred. Blameless. I don't think he's being uh, uh, hyperbolic there. I think he, he's not exaggerating. He kept the 613 laws, and he kept the additional laws that the Pharisees had come up with. So the problem with the Pharisees was not that they weren't keeping enough of the law on the letter, on the letter of the law to be righteous. They, they kept the law better than anyone else on the, on the surface. Their problem was they didn't understand the intent of the law. They didn't understand what we're going to discover in that long section on the law. That, that the law is intended to do so much more than transact. It, it's more than a transaction between us and God to merit a place in the kingdom of heaven. See, that's where they got it wrong. And so Paul says, by keeping the letter of the law, the surface of the law, you, no one will earn a place in the kingdom of heaven because it's not enough. It's not enough. And every one of the 613 laws needs to be deepened. 
We need to deepen our understanding of what that, the intention of that law is. And then we endeavor to live in the depth of that law. So let me give you an example. One of the laws is circumcision. Do we keep the, the, the rule of circumcision? Well, earlier I said, Paul said, if you circumcise yourself, you might as well cut everything off because no one's saved by circumcision. So do we keep the law of circumcision? Yes. But we don't keep it like the Pharisees kept it. We know that in order to be saved, our hearts need to be circumcised. That's the fulfillment of the law of circumcision. Just as the sacrifice of Christ is the fulfillment of all of the sacrificial laws in the book of Leviticus. Yes? Yeah, now Jesus never broke the surface the, the letter of the law in the, in the Old Covenant, but he broke all of the man-made laws that were a fence around the 613 laws. Yes, you're right. As if to say, you, you're misunderstanding the point. So we deepen each law to understand what's the depth of each law, and then we understand what Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus came to teach us the depth of the law and then to fill it up with his own righteousness. So here's the thing. We're going to fail. If the Pharisees failed, we are going to fail to keep the depth of these laws. Okay? We just will. That's why it's important that we realize that we don't fulfill the law. Christ fulfills the law for us. That is, it is by His perfect righteousness under the law that we gain entrance by grace through faith into the kingdom of heaven. So our righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees because the righteousness of Jesus under the old covenant will be imputed to us by grace through faith. And our guilt under the law will be imputed to him on the cross. But notice what I didn't say. Let's therefore throw away the law. Yes, Yosef. Yeah, so here's the thing. Jesus did not abolish the law. There's still expectations on New Covenant believers to live holy, righteous lives. And we have a greater ability to do that now that our hearts have been circumcised and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But show me any Christian who, who, who's truly saved who says that you can break the Ten Commandments. That sounds a lot like, should we sin more that, that grace may abound more? By no means. There's an expectation that we will endeavor and we will desire to live in the depth of each law. So we don't keep the law the way that the old covenant people did. Now we will fail to do that. So no one gains entrance into heaven or into the kingdom by keeping the law. It's, we all fall short. Therefore, the law is never the means of salvation. But the Pharisees thought that it was because they were able to keep the letter of the law. But Jesus says, no, you just misunderstand. We've got to move on. Uh, any other burning questions about this?
This is a big idea. Maybe it'll become more clear as we go on. I'm not teaching works righteousness. I want to be very clear about that. No one is saved by keeping the law. Because we, we've all broken the law. Therefore, we are saved because Jesus kept the law. At the same time, Jesus did not come to abolish the law and say, well, then go and sin more. God's word is perfect. The law teaches us what it means to be holy and righteous. And as sons of God, we desire to live holy lives. Not for salvation, but because we have been saved. Right. Right, and we'll see why as we move on. Let's go on. Um, the second general stipulation of covenant with God is the Shema. Shema Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So I preached on this not too long ago. What this means is we are to love God with all of ourselves. So the heart is the center of your being. It's your soul, basically, or your spirit. And soul is an unfortunate English translation because what, what that word nefesh really means is all of your person, so with your body. So you love God with your heart, you love God with your body, and you love God with your strength. That is, that what is your sphere of influence, your possessions, your relationships, your, your sphere of influence outside of yourself? Everything about you is oriented toward God. Now, this is right after we get the Ten Commandments. How are we to understand the, the law in the Old Covenant? Well, the, the law is really there to help us to understand how would we express a total love for God. You, if you love me, Jesus says, you will what? You obey my commandments. So you see how these two go together. First, here's the Ten Commandments. Keep the law, but don't just keep the law for the sake of keeping the law to transact with God and earn yourself a place in his kingdom. Keep the law to express your love. That's why the Shema, which is just the Hebrew word for hear, is, has been, since Deuteronomy was written, a daily prayer for the Jews and still is to this day. It was intended by God to remind them that their law-keeping was not law-keeping for law-keeping's sake. It, it was, this was supposed to be a corrective against cold legalism. You are trying to keep the law not to earn a place in God, but because you are responding to the grace of God at work in your life and expressing your love for Him through obedience. What I hope to do by, by the end of tonight is to show you that the Old Testament view of the law is very much the same as the New Testament view of law. And the reason that we struggle with law in the Old Testament is because we totally misunderstand its place in the covenant. God saved a people by grace. He, he kept them saved by grace. The law was meant to be their response to the grace that God had given to them. And their keeping of the law was a way for them to express their love for God. 
It sounds a lot like the new covenant, doesn't it? And our problem when we pit the Old and the New Testament against one another is that we've misunderstood the Old Testament. We're reading it the way the Pharisees read it. And Jesus comes along and says, you've misunderstood. Matthew 22, teacher, what is the great commandment, greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus, again, is not being innovative. He is teaching the right way of understanding the law in the Old Covenant. The greatest commandment is to love God because it's that contextualizes the law. The law is there as the vehicle by which people can express their love for God. And the law is either helping you to love God or love people. And this is why love for neighbor is second to the first one because you love your neighbor as an expression of your love for God. So that's the second general stipulation of covenant with God. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And if you love God that way, you will fulfill the law. Third general stipulation, and this, this just seems so shocking. We can get behind chapter 6, but then you get to chapter 7. And what does, he, what does uh, Moses say in chapter 7? When you go into the land, you must devote all the inhabitants of the land to destruction. You are to spare none. You are to burn their cities. You are to kill their old men and their young men, their old women, their young women, and their infants and their livestock. You are to devote it all to destruction. It is all under the ban. You're not to take any of it for yourself. You're not to allow any of them to live. You have to be my rod of justice against these false God-loving, idol-worshipping sinners. Now square that with chapter 6. What's going on here? I hope that you've begin, begun to see in the Torah how committed God is in these first five books of the Bible to a typological experience of the gospel. What I mean by that is this. Everything that happens to Israel in the first five books of the Bible are the dress rehearsal for humanity at large in the gospel. What God does in and through and for Israel, God is going to do in and through and for humanity through the gospel. So just to review, uh, there were slaves in Egypt where humanity is enslaved to sin. Uh, they were delivered from their slavery with the blood of a Passover lamb, we are delivered from our slavery to sin through the blood of the Passover lamb by the crucifixion of that lamb, Jesus the Messiah. Then the, the people were baptized into Moses by going through the waters of the Red Sea, and we are baptized into the new covenant by going under the water and coming out of the water. And then the people went to Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with God. By coming out of the waters of baptism, we are declaring publicly that we are in the new covenant people of God. And we have a place in the New Jerusalem. And then the people are wandering in the wilderness. 
and God is testing them and God is humbling them and it's not easy and they're not in the promised land and that's the Christian life. You're baptized, you're all fired up about Jesus and then you still have to live your life. And it's hard. And how many times do we as Christians grumble and want to go back to our slavery? Oh, life was so much sweeter when I could do this, that, and the other thing. I just long for this, that, and the other thing. That's the battle between the flesh and the heart. We want to go back to our Egypt. Our slavery. We love our slavery. Just as they, they complained, why can't we go back to slavery in Egypt? There was leeks and delicious vegetables and we could have all the fish we wanted. And you brought us out here so that we could die in the wilderness of hunger and thirst and I hate this manna right that's that's the Christian life and we're being tested and humbled but then after Deuteronomy Israel's going to go into the land and fulfill Deuteronomy 7 to devote to destruction all the people in Canaan you say well that has no New Testament equivalent except it does Revelation 19 the Antichrist has brought great battle, surrounds the people of God, and Jesus Christ comes back and takes back the universe, takes back the world, and he devotes to destruction everyone opposed to God on the face of the earth. And if that wasn't enough, that's not actually the end of it. He raises to life everyone who has ever lived. For those of us who are covered in the blood of Jesus, there's a Passover for us at the final judgment. We go into the promised land, eternal promised land. But at the great white throne judgment, Jesus Christ devotes to destruction one person at a time those who worshiped other gods. This is gospel truth. That's why Deuteronomy 7 is in the Bible. Because God is committed to the typological rehearsal of Israel in the Torah for humanity through the gospel. And it's a warning. God did wipe out those Canaanites. Now, not perfectly. But where there was failure on Israel's part in the book of Joshua, there will be no failure at the final judgment. Everyone that opposes God will be devoted to destruction. So, that's how we have to understand chapter 7. It's it's a foreshadowing of the gospel. That's why I say we always lament about God in the Old Testament and how brutal he was and, and lacking of grace and compassion, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the most violent moments in the Bible are in the New Testament. The most violent moment in the history of the universe is the cross of Christ because that's where we killed God. The second most violent moment in the Bible happens in Revelation 19 and then in 20 when Jesus comes back and devotes the world to destruction when he takes it back. In the meantime, we don't devote anyone to destruction. This is what separates us from Islam. We wait. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Israel did it then and there because they were living on the typological level of the gospel. They were the dress rehearsal now we're in the, the show. We're in the real show. And so we wait. We're in the wilderness still. We're not going into the promised land until Jesus comes back. But when Jesus comes back, 
then we'll fulfill that part of the Scriptures. Or he will, anyway. Moving on. Fourth major uh, stipulation of the covenant is to be totally dependent on God. I'm not going to read all this, but just the bolded part. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, and this is really important, this is where Jesus goes in in his wilderness temptation. You shall remember the way that the, the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. He was humbling you and testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Did they succeed the test? No. But then he goes on and Moses says, but God provided for you that whole time. He gave you food. He gave you water. He gave you meat to eat. Your sandals didn't wear out. Right? Your clothing didn't wear out. That's a miracle in and of itself. Forty years in in one set of sandals. He, He provided for you all of the way through. Verse 7, but the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Now imagine if you've been walking around the desert for 40 years, for the wilderness generation your whole life, and then just feel how this would sink in if the, the preacher preached it. It's a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, which you will lack nothing a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So compare that, you're like, yes, finally. But then here's the warning. Take care. Lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes what I commanded you today. Moses is warning the people, when you go into this good land that has everything you've ever wanted, you're, you're not going to need miraculous provision anymore. The land will provide for you. You're going to have not just enough, you're going to thrive. You're going to be the envy of all your, the nations around you. You know, everyone else is living in deserts all around you, except Egypt. They got this little Nile that they, they're camped all around. But you, you're in a new Eden. And you're going to start to think that you're pretty good. And you're not going to be depending on God anymore. So when you go in there and the land provides for you, don't forget God. Now, this, this hits home for us, doesn't it? We are so prosperous, aren't we? And when we're thriving, when, when we have great prosperity, it's so hard to be dependent on God. Because we have so much. So we don't even really care if Jesus comes back today or tomorrow. But if we're in a literal wilderness, or if you're in a literal dungeon, or, or if your family members were literally in danger for their lives you would have a whole different level of dependency on God. So our blessing becomes our curse. Why? Because when we forget God, and this is what Moses is warning them, when you forget God, then you step out of covenant blessing. When you depend on yourself and not on God, when when you're content with the comforts and the security that you can get by yourself, you don't need God, you don't depend on Him, you don't require Him, then God will begin to discipline you. 
And sometimes the discipline is quite severe. Yes. Yeah. Well, we won't. You're right. Uh, when we get into Joshua through Second uh, Kings, I'll address that a little bit more. But one option, I'll just float it, is that the exile in 586 BC has a typological connection with the final judgment, right? That God used the the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom in 722 BC, and he used the Babylonians to judge his people in 586 BC. And then he brought a remnant back into Jerusalem, and he rebuilt Jerusalem. You have Ezra and Nehemiah, right, building the city and reteaching the law. You could say that you have Revelation 19 in the book of Joshua. Then at the end of 2 Kings, you have Revelation 20. And then in Revelation 22, 21 and 22, you have Ezra and Nehemiah, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, typologically. Which at, begs the question, what do we do with the book of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings? One option, one option, is to say, well, that's the millennial kingdom. On the typological level, Christ is going to come back and reign for a thousand years before the final judgment. And in that time, you have this sort of weird mixture of humanity where some are raised unto glory and some are still trying to work it out, perhaps. Or you just say, well, the dress rehearsal brought us to this point and then you, God needed some historical reality to get us to the final judgment. And so what you do is you just cut Joshua through 2 Kings out of the typology. That would be an all-millennial treatment on the typological level. And you just pinch the book of Joshua and the, book, and the end of 2 Kings together. You fold all of that political history out of the typological framework and you move from Joshua and the conquest right into the final judgment of exile in 586 BC and then the new Jerusalem with Ezra and Nehemiah. So those are your two options. Let's move on. That's a good question. We'll deal with that over the next many weeks. Uh, we look at this. Uh, I'll just summarize this for sake of time. But Jesus said exactly this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Rich people don't depend on God. And the only way to get into the kingdom is to depend entirely on God. So it's not that having money makes it impossible for you to get into the kingdom. Having money makes it difficult for you to depend on God, and God is not going to give you entrance into his eternal blessing without the, the humble dependency, the poverty of spirit, which we're going to talk about a little bit more. Um, and so Jesus says, be careful what you wish for in the temporal blessings of this world, which is why I hate the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says, take your blessing now, but you take your blessing now, and, and, and it's as easy for you to get into the kingdom as a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So you see the parallel there. The next general stipulation 
is reject all notions of self-righteousness. I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I love this chapter. I love it. I think because it preaches the gospel so clearly. Moses, in chapter 9, says when you go into the land, and you take the land, and you, you, you get these big fortified cities, and you're living in houses that you didn't build, and you're, you're cultivating crops that you didn't plant, and you've got the, a wine press for grapes that you didn't cultivate, do not for a minute begin to think that you deserve it. Do not for a minute think that it's because of your righteousness that God has taken you from slavery and brought you into the land. That's not what's going on here, says Moses. You don't deserve this. You are stiff-necked people, as I said this morning. He says it in, in chapter 9, Deuteronomy 9. And he says, you don't deserve this. You're getting this entirely uh, as a gift by the grace of God. And I don't want you to ever forget that. Now, this sounds a lot New Covenant too, doesn't it? And what I hope we're seeing is, wow, the only real difference between Old and New Covenants is that the Old Covenant is the typology and the New Covenant is the real thing. Other than that, they're the same. Never for a moment, if, you're in, if you anticipate salvation, heaven, resurrection, and eternal life in the new heavens and new earth, never for a moment think that it's because of your righteousness. It's not. It's because God chose to give you a great gift. In this chapter also, God says, I'm going to use you to punish the people. Remember to Abraham, God said that I can't give you the land now because the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full capacity. In other words, I'm still patient to wait it out. But now some almost four and a half decade, uh, centuries later, God's patience has run out and the time of judgment has come. That is a warning against the world on the typological level. God is being patient. The, 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 the sin of the world has not yet reached its fullness where God is willing to drop the hammer in final judgment, but he will. And if you read Revelation 19 carefully, we come with Christ to drop that hammer. Jesus Christ comes on a white horse and the armies of heaven in white linen on white horses behind him. That's us. But we're not on the right side because we are righteous. We're on the right side because of God's grace. So I love that chapter. It's just such a great chapter. And, and, and it shows you how far off the Pharisees were in their understanding of their covenant with God. It's like they never read that chapter. The next general stipulation is to be totally committed to God through covenant. I think this is the six of six. And this is, this is where I think the old and the new covenant really depart from one another on some levels. Moses says you need to be totally committed to this. You need to keep this covenant perfectly if you're going to get the blessings. And then he exhorts them to circumcise their heart. What is the heart? It's the seat of your intellect. That's what your mind. Your mind is in your heart, not in your brain. And your mind works through your body via the brain. But your mind is a spiritual entity which is in your heart. It's also the seat of your emotions. And it's also the seat of your volition, biblically. So those three things, your mind, your emotion, and your volition, that is where you make choices, that's in your heart. And, and Moses says, you need to circumcise your heart and keep this covenant. The problem is you can't circumcise your own heart. 
And Moses begins to predict here, which he'll pick up again at the end of the book, total failure to keep covenant with God. They will fail in this sixth aspect of keeping covenant with God. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, Deuteronomy 10.16. This same idea is picked up by David in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David understands Deuteronomy. He's saying, I can't do it. Jeremiah picks it up and he says, look, there's going to have to be a new covenant because this old covenant's not going to cut it. We can't keep it. And then he, he anticipates the new covenant. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Then Ezekiel says, God says, I will give, in Ezekiel eleven nineteen 19 and 20, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Romans 6, 17. We've been over this as a church, right? In the new covenant, we've been made obedient from the heart. I think, I think that's the great difference between the old and the new covenant. That now we are able to, to keep the law in our heart. We can love the Lord our, our God with our whole heart. Now we still have the flesh, which is a problem. But the promise of the new covenant, see it's not over yet. We don't have all of the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant is that though we die, because we have a circumcised heart now, we will go to heaven and then God will raise our bodies without any proclivity to sin. And then we will keep Deuteronomy 6, that we will love the Lord our God, not just with our whole heart, which we're capable of doing now, but also with our whole soul, that is our body, our whole selves, and with all our strength. Everything we do will be motivated by love for God. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's what the old covenant couldn't deliver. Why? Because the old covenant existed on the typological level. It was the rehearsal for the grand drama of humanity through the gospel. And now, those things are being fulfilled in us. Now, where I don't un what I don't know, and I, let me just admit this, is does this mean that there's some different aspect to salvation between us and Old Testament saints. I don't really know. So I'm still trying to figure that out. Because you would think regeneration would lead to a, a new heart in Old Testament saints too, but I just don't see it in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant. I see a lot of justification, but not a lot of sanctification. But I don't know. But what I do know is we do have this now. That's a New Covenant reality. So there, that's the general laws. Now I know it looks like we've only gone this far and we only have 15 minutes left, but I can go over this, the rest of this fairly quickly. Because it's, it's repetitive and it's just, what I want you to get is the movement of it all. Okay? You don't believe me, Peter? <laughs> I have only gone over three minutes so far in, in Frontline. All right. No, in 15 minutes. 
So, so okay, the, remember the six general stipulations, right? We started with the Ten Commandments, and then we ended with total devotion or total commitment to the covenant through a circumcised heart, which was impossible for them but is a new covenant reality for us. Now we get to these specific laws, which we're like, I have no idea what to do with them. And what I said was these specific laws are helping us to understand what do the Ten Commandments mean in the first place. So the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. In chapter 12, we have all kinds of laws about where and how to worship. This is how God wants to be worshipped. That helps us to understand what does he mean when he says you shall have no other gods before me. Well, it means you worship me the way I tell you to worship me, where I tell you to worship me, when I tell you to worship me. I am in control of this worship thing, not you. And you're not going to be innovative. You're not going to come up with your own ways. You're not going to borrow from the nations. You're going to do it my way and only my way. That's what it means that we should have no other gods before him. The second commandment, thou shall not make unto thee any graven image. In chapter 13, it's all about stoning anyone who entices anyone toward idolatry. If someone in town is trying to promote idolatry, take them out to the gates and stone them. If your own mother or father are trying to get you to worship an idol, take them out to the gates and stone them. If your son or daughter is trying to get you to uh, worship an idol, take your son or daughter to the gates and stone them. It's pretty severe. But really, what, that, what Moses is doing in this part of Deuteronomy is saying, God's serious about this. You don't worship any graven image. You don't worship idols. It's, it's very offensive to God. Commandment number three, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now this is where it gets really hard because it starts in chapter 14 with laws about being called sons of God. Now we have to pause there before we go on to the rest of them. What's going on here is as a son of God, you take the name of God onto yourself. So, Whereas if you just read the third commandment, we think don't say the name of God the wrong way in the wrong context at the wrong time. But actually that commandment has a lot more to say to us. We become sons of God. We take the name of God onto ourselves. Therefore, our behavior, if it is offensive if it causes others to blaspheme God, is taking God's name in vain. We are misrepresenting God as one who bears his name. And so we get these laws about table fellowship, what you can and cannot eat. Sons eat around the table with their father. And if you go back to Leviticus, you remember that the clean and unclean paradigm was not about what animals you can and cannot eat ultimately. That's a typological level. But ultimately... What? Clean leads us toward life. Unclean leads us toward death. Therefore, as a son of God who has the name of God on you, everything you do, including your dietary habits, have to be communicating life. You need to be pro-life. You need to be a, an expression of life. When people look at you, they don't see the aroma of death, they see life. Laws about eating anything that died naturally, same thing. Laws about boiling a goat in its mother's milk, and this makes the point even more. What's the problem? A mother's milk is life-giving. You don't kill the kid with that which is supposed to provide the kid with life. 
So how ultimately do you take the name of the Lord your God in vain? You communicate any kind of death. We need to be a people of life, pro-life. And I'm thinking about abortion, but way more broadly than that. So I suppose healthy choices in your life would be one way. I can't go through all of these, but I'm just trying to give you the general gist because I'm going to get sung down. And Peter's been waiting to do that for a couple years. Um, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So you get laws about the Sabbath here. That's easy enough to understand. Laws about dedicating the firstborn of the herd and the flock. This is interesting. In Deuteronomy, keep the Sabbath to remember that you were slaves in Egypt. In Exodus, in the, in the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath to remember that on the seventh day God rested. In Deuteronomy, keep the Sabbath to remember that you were slaves, but now you're free. And you dedicate the firstborn of the herd and the flock constantly to remind yourself of the Passover, that God delivered you through the death of the firstborn. So it's another, another way of keeping Sabbath, if we, take, if we understand what Sabbath is, is we, we remember that God is the creator, that's Exodus 20, and we remember that God is Savior, Exodus, or Deuteronomy 5. So keeping Sabbath then is not just about one day and seven. Keeping Sabbath is remembering certain things about God. And you orient your whole life to remember things about God as creator and savior. That's what it means to keep Sabbath. And then you have the laws about the feasts. All these, the six feasts that we learned in Leviticus. Those remind us that God is creator and savior. Honor your father and your mother. And these are all laws about uh, submitting to authority. So what does God mean when he says honor your father and mother? It, it, what he means is I'm going to put authority over you and you obey the authority that I put over you. The primary authority in any person's life is their mother and their father. But that's not where it ends. That's just where it begins. So there's laws about judges. Laws about forbidden worship. That you need to obey the priests. Laws about stoning anyone who entices anyone toward idolatry. Again, that's about obeying the authority of the priests. Laws about legal decisions by priests and judges. Laws about kings. Laws about Levites, laws about abominable Canaanite practices, again, about priests, and laws about discerning prophets. So ultimately, in all of those laws, you get uh, judges, priests, kings, and prophets. These are all the authority figures in ancient Israel. I, I'm going to get sung down. We'll talk after. The next one, don't murder. A lot of that's easy, right? Laws about manslaughter and murder. But what about property boundaries? Don't move property boundaries. Well, they thought about murder in far bigger terms. We would think, well, that would be in don't steal. But God gave each tribe an inheritance. And if you move a, a boundary marker, you are murdering the next generation by stealing their inheritance. They, they connected the land and the, and the person so, so deeply. Private property is a God's idea. God owns it, but he's given it to it. So you're, you're depriving them of their livelihood. That's the other way of thinking about it. If you move a boundary marker too far, then they can't grow enough crops to feed themselves. And you kill them that way. Then there's all kinds of laws about war. This law about stoning a stubborn and rebellious son. You may say, well, that seems like murder. But the problem is we're not talking about 
about minor offensive. We're talking about a son who's putting the family line in jeopardy, a, a son who is threatening to bring the curse of God down on that family, that tribe, and that nation. And so you preserve the life of the family, you preserve the life of the tribe and the nation by eliminating the one who is threatening to undo all of that. Laws about wearing men's and women's clothing is really weird. But what this ultimately gets to is men have certain reproductive responsibilities and women have certain reproductive responsibilities and if you confuse those responsibilities then you don't get the next generation and you murder an unborn generation you see don't murder there's so much more when when you think about what it is finding nests this is interesting if you find a nest you can eat the eggs but you can't kill the mother why and, and this is an example for all wildlife. If you're a hunter or an angler, you're not allowed to kill the, the grown-up reproducing animals because you want more animals to come into the world. So God gives us license to eat animals, to hunt animals, to eat eggs even, but not at the point where you exhaust the supply. That's what that's all about. That's, that's murder. Laws about parapets, this is just about private property. It's your responsibility to make sure that your property is safe so that nobody dies accidentally. A parapet is a, a fence on your roof. You gotta put a fence on your roof so that people won't fall off your roof. That's where they used to have barbecues and stuff on the roofs, right? But that, again, is just an example. Whatever you own, you're responsible to make sure that nobody gets hurt through your property. Do not commit adultery. This one's really hard, I'm running out of time. I still have six minutes, Peter. But on this one, it's all about uh, the wrong kind of intermixing. Adultery, we think in, in such limited terms about what adultery is. And we think when it says, thou shall not commit adultery, that, that what it says, uh, a man may not sleep with another man's wife. Well, that's true, that's one expression of adultery. But what, what God means by the commandment is don't cross God-ordained boundaries. Do not cross God-ordained boundaries. That's why you have all of this non-mixing. Don't mix different kinds of things. Uh, whether it's clothing or seed or, or what have you, or animals even. Don't allow a donkey and an ox. Now, part of that is the poor donkey can't keep up, but it's much bigger than that. God has set boundaries, and he's given them rules to just remind them that God is the one who sets boundaries, and don't cross those boundaries. Whether it's another man's wife or an, a donkey and an ox and so on. But, uh, and, and so if you go through all of that, that's what it is. It's about respecting God's boundaries. But look at laws about tassels. This is really weird. How, what does that got to do with crossing boundaries? Well, a tassel, they were supposed to wear these shawls that had the tassels that come out the bottom. And the, and the shawls themselves were made of linen. But the tassel had to have one tassel of wool because the wool could get dyed blue and they were instructed to dye it blue which was 40 times more expensive than white but you have wool and linen mix which is prohibited but in this same mi uh, list of laws about not going past God's boundaries and not mixing what shouldn't be mixed you have a law where God commands you to mix linen and wool why it's not really about the tassels it's God's way of saying there are exceptions to this Here's a good exception. 
under no circumstances are you to marry a Moabite because your children won't be able to go into the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation unless her name is Ruth and her grandson is David. Right? So the tassel law is just a reminder to the people, don't be dogmatic and legalistic about this. Use common sense. Use wisdom to know when this is an exception. I find that interesting. There's so much more we could say about that. Uh, don't steal. This is pretty easy, right? The one that's hard is laws about divorce and remarriage. So I had to do a little reading about that, so I want to share that. So there is a scenario given in chapter 24, 1 to 4, where a man divorces his wife, she marries another man, he divorces her and marries her first husband, and there's a law that says don't do that, and it's put in the list of laws about stealing. Why? Is that adultery? Isn't that a problem with adultery? No, here's why. This is about a conspiracy between two men who want to steal from the family of the wife because the first man marries the woman and has to pay a dowry. If he's not pleased with her for a, for a, a, a legitimate reason in the, in the law and he divorces her, he gets the dowry back. And then she marries another man. There's only a dowry on the first time. And then he's in this, and he divorces her, and the first man marries her back and keeps a dowry. He's effectively stolen money from his father-in-law. So apparently that was a problem, so they talked about it. But this is not really about that, so much as it is stealing is you are not permitted to, to any level of creativity in how you would steal from another person. There are no loopholes here. You are not to take what is not yours doesn't matter what loophole you find or how creative you can be. If it's not yours, you're not to take it. And there's more we could say about those. Uh, you're not to bear false witness. Laws about leprosy is weird, but what we get is uh, a reminder of Miriam, which I might have to revise what I said about Aaron and Miriam being wrong because this, this law about leprosy is in the laws about false witness which means maybe Miriam had borne false witness against Moses. The, the result of that was leprosy, so it's included here to clear Moses' name a second time, so I think I have to revise what I said in previous weeks, but also to show how serious it is that you, you threaten to bring a divine curse on you if you bear false witness, which is interesting. Um, and then don't covet Lots of interesting one here. Um, laws about Levite marriage. That's where, you know, Ruth and Boaz, you're supposed to take the sandal off the man if he's next in kin and doesn't want to provide for you. What I discovered was the whole sandal foot ceremony is supposed to be a picture of sexual intercourse. So the woman removing the sandal from the foot is her removing her vagina from his penis. You have no right there, right? So do you see how that works, like in a weird symbol way? It's saying, you have no sexual right to me if you're not going to provide for me. And so then it goes to the next of kin and the same thing. And the removing of the sandal at every occasion is not arbitrary. It's a communication, no sexual right. 
And this is because it, it would be that the senior member, even if he didn't provide for his brother's wife after he died, might feel that he has a sexual right to her without providing for her, and this says no. And that falls into the category of covet. You do not covet. If you have sex, you also provide. This is interesting, isn't it? So just, just an example for, for how you are to read these laws. You have to go back and, and try to understand them all. That brings us to the end of the general stipulations. Now, what are specific laws, not general? What I want you to see here is that this is not an exhaustive list of laws. It's giving us a hermeneutical set of principles for understanding the Ten Commandments. And that could be applied like case law more broadly than it is. It's just showing us that there's a breadth to this. And the intention is always love for God, commitment to God. It's not arbitrary. We get to blessings and curses. Ultimately, if you keep covenant, God will bless you in the land, which is a picture of being blessed in the eternal promised land. Or the ultimate curse is to be exiled from the land. The ultimate curse... really, in the New Covenant, is the lake of fire, which is the ultimate exile. Then we get to the ratification of the covenant, and then you get to the end. The last thing I want to say, um, in the Song of Moses, Moses basically writes an anthem for the nation saying, you're going to fail, you're going to fail, you're going to fail. You are going to fail. And he says it very poetically, but that becomes an anthem for the people. But then he ends and says, but after you fail and you cry out to God, then he will redeem you again. And after God redeems Israel again, then we're done with the dress rehearsal and the new covenant, the, the fulfillment of all of these shadows comes to fruition, and that's what we're living. We're reliving Israel's experience. But Christ has succeeded for us and we with Christ. And so the blessings are ours. Ultimately, Moses dies at the end. He's not allowed to go into the promised land because he's so closely associated with the law and the old covenant. And the law kills because no one can keep it. But Joshua, which is the name of Jesus, Joshua's Hebrew, Jesus is Greek, it's the same name. Yeshua or Jesus. Yeshua, Hebrew, that's Joshua. Jesus, Jesus, that's Greek. Joshua comes... At the end of the wilderness wandering, that's where we are in salvation history right now. We're in the wilderness waiting for that last few sermons when Yeshua will come and take us into the eternal promised land. And that's where the book of Deuteronomy ends. It's interesting that the book of Deuteronomy ends right where we are as a people in the church. Three minutes over. You didn't sing. Oh well. Let me pray, and then I'll, I'll be happy to stick around, <clears throat> especially if you have questions about the law. I don't know how clear I was in that section. Let me pray. God, thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you for helping us to understand it, that there are really six great covenant stipulations in Deuteronomy that carry forward into the new covenant. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that we are not saved by keeping the law, but we have been saved to keep the law, and not just the letter of the law, but the depth of the law. And we thank you that we are keeping the law perfectly in our hearts, that you've made us holy. We desire righteousness. We thirst and hunger for it. 
And though we fail because of our flesh, we know the day will come when you will raise us from the dead and there will no longer be a struggle and we will love you with our whole heart, with our whole self and with our whole strength. And we praise you for that. It's amazing to see the gospel in the Torah. I pray that these men would see it. In Christ's name I pray, amen.